Welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere, where CEOs, leaders, and experts at building teams, companies, organizations, and amazing cultures share how to lead from anywhere in the world. I'm your co-host on the East Coast, Judy Bianco Mathis. And I'm your co-host on the West Coast, Mitch Simon. And we invite you to join us to Team Anywhere. Today on the podcast, we interview Nick Petrie, author of Work Without Stress, Building Resilience for Long-Term Success. Whereas most teams fail under stress, there are certain teams that actually thrive under stressful conditions. Nick shares with us the secrets of how hybrid and virtual teams confront today's turbulence, focus on strengthening their relationship, look for new opportunities, and restructure to take advantage of the disruptions in today's new work environment. Welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere. And I'm your co-host, Ginny Bianco Mathis on the East Coast. And I'm here with my co-host, Mitch Simon on the West Coast. And we are excited today to have the incredibly accomplished Nick Petrie from New Zealand. And Nick comes to us um, from far, far away, first of all, uh, given where we're at. And um, he was formerly with uh, the Center for Creative Leadership, where he uh, was a researcher, writer, and instructor. And he continues that work now on his own. And his current focus is resiliency and leadership and the complexities all around that. And he has a book called, which we will hopefully talk about, Work Without Stress, Billion Resistance for Long Success long-term success. And welcome, Nick. Thank you very much, Jenny. Thank you much. Sure. And to begin, we're going to start with a question that we have been asking all of our guests, which is, how has been your journey through that 20 and now into 21 with this COVID pandemic? How has it affected you um, and all the different parts of your life as you're now looking forward? Yeah, um, in some ways it's affected me a lot and in many ways not at all. Uh, when, when it sort of came through the work from home and COVID, we were uh, living in uh, Austin, Texas. I'd been there for 12 years, um, living in the US with my Australian wife. We had four young boys, um, all under 10 years old. And so when it happened, you know, like other working parents, all of a sudden we were homeschooling, we were, I was running workshops, we were doing all of this, so it was pretty full on to start with. Um, so that period probably like for most people was sort of hard, and then um, sort of got interesting as I started to wonder can I keep doing my work, which was a lot of virtual workshops, things like this, um, some of my clients started to say to me, well Nick, don't take this the wrong way, but these sessions you're doing, are, they're pretty much just as good as when we used to fly you in and put you in a hotel and feed you and all of this. And I sort of sort of started thinking about that, and I thought, well, do I really need to be in Austin, Texas right now, or could we, could we be anywhere? And, um, you know, we'd been away from home for a long time, away from family. My wife, you know, was away from her parents, and the kids were growing up with no 
cousins or uncles or aunties. So we started to think, could we be doing the same work from New Zealand? And so we said, let's, uh, you know, there's always opportunities which come out of these crises if you ask the right questions. And so we decided to come home. So we moved back to Nelson, New Zealand, and it's a bit of an experiment because we didn't know whether clients would keep wanting to do this. Um, and it turns out they have, and it's busier than usual. So um, so now I've got a sort of different life back in New Zealand, but half my life is still in the US or with my European clients. So um, overall, it's it's been good, but it's been um, a bit of a revolution for our family. But people are, people are happy with how things are. Wow. That, yeah, that was a very literal journey for you besides uh, the mental journey. Yeah. Well, you had shared with me uh, the work you're doing, interviewing uh, a lot of leaders. And through all of that interviewing and interacting, some themes have emerged. And I wonder if you can share that with, with us. Yeah, uh, a few things. I mean, I, I both interviewed leaders, plus I read a lot of the research on how do individuals, teams, groups respond when big adversity or trauma happens. Um, and so I sort of put the interviews plus the research together. Um, so some of the things which emerged was that when a big adversity hits, pretty much everyone has the same response initially. Everyone has a big drop-off and their um, sort of functioning goes down. But then after that, people start to go in different directions. Um, some people continue to get worse, frankly, and if it's if they get overloaded, they can end up with post-traumatic stress, and, you know, that will be happening for some people out there right now. Um, and it also happens for organisations. Some just got completely overwhelmed and probably won't recover. Some start to recover, but they never get back to originally where they were, um, so they survive but are impaired. And we see that with businesses and we see it with individuals. Most people actually are pretty resilient and they'll bounce back and they'll come out of the adversity pretty much looking the same as the way they went into it. However, there was there's this fourth group, and this is the group I was most interested in, whereas afterwards they bounce back, but they don't bounce back to how they were. Afterwards, they actually look different. They use the experience to transform, to change, to grow. And at the end of it, they've got new capabilities, greater capacity, new skills. And they're sort of what some authors would call anti-fragile. The more volatile the situation gets, the more they grow. You know, companies like Amazon are a bit like this. It almost looks like it doesn't matter what you throw at them, they get stronger. Um, right. And so I've seen those four parts with leaders I'm dealing with and teams I'm dealing with, businesses. That's been one theme. Um, another one I've noticed is that sort of this, this you know, whole event has gone in phases for people. And there's sort of three main phases I've noticed. The first one is the crisis phase when everyone is just trying to cope with this huge, you know, it's an explosion of work or it's, you know, just trying to get through the situation. Second phase has been where people start to explore new opportunities which are emerging from the situation. And the third phase is that growth. Um, and one pattern I've noticed is that many, many leaders, organizations are still stuck 11 months later in crisis mode. And yes. um, they're not really evolving and coming out of it. So eventually, I mean, you can... A lot of these leaders I meet, they're very good at being in crisis mode. 
They love the adrenaline. They love the energy. They love operating. But they're used to doing it for two months, three months. No one's used to doing it for 11 months, 14 months. So they're, they're starting to burn out. Um, and so there's a lot of suffering, actually, I'm seeing in the workplaces at oh. the moment. Um, probably the third pattern, um, I've noticed that um, a lot of the, some leaders who are very skilled are not getting to do the type of work which used to really fulfill them. So oh. they're doing a very different type of work at the moment in sort of the current context. And it wasn't really what they signed up for. Uh, one leader I know, he's very good at the big picture, strategic, dealing with stakeholders, um, winning business, doing this sort of thing. But he's not doing that anymore. And he's just running out of energy for it. Um, so I'm seeing quite a bit of that. People, it hasn't just been a short phase. It's been chronic, really. Ah, interesting. Now, how is that affecting them then, especially now when we're going into these hybrid environments and them needing to lead their teams um, and um, taking whatever culture that there was and now trying to transfer it? um, How are they feeling about that? What are they doing about that? Yeah. Yeah, um, well, I think it's really amplified everything about a leader's approach and leader's habits. Um, one CEO said to me, you know, I said, uh, what are you noticing about all of your leaders in terms of working from home? And he says, the same principles of good leadership and team leadership still apply, but everything is amplified. He said, if you didn't have good one-to-one meetings with your people before, that was bad. If you're not doing it now, it's disastrous. Um, right. And he said the same for the leaders with good um, practices, which they're doing previously, those are amplified. So it's almost like seeing a bit of a bifurcation with teams. Some are oh. like just getting much worse. They're really struggling. And then others with um, you know, good managers are actually, it's been interesting as I've interviewed them, um, they said they are feeling closer than ever before. Um, yes. Their ties, which has been a good and a bad thing, interestingly, their ties with each other in the team um, have been amazing. You know, they now they know each other's pets and families and hobbies and all this. That's been really good. They're much tighter. Uh, the connection's strong. However, what I've also heard in the interviews is people have said they're very concerned because their weak ties across the organisation have dwindled and died. They are not meeting anyone from other departments. Um, They are not meeting people in the cafeteria at lunch. Um, And they're very concerned sort of for their knowledge of the company, but also for their career. And interestingly, I do quite a lot with technology companies. A lot of the people in these companies have never met a person from their company, (laughs) which, you know, when when they were telling me this, I was just shocked. I'm like, of course. I'm like, um, because they, t- you know, they get new people quickly. So um, that's a big thing. People have never met someone from their company and they've been there a year. Yeah. They've never met yeah. person to person. That's exactly okay. right. They've just met, you know, faces on like screens. That. Yeah. yeah. Um, which has been all right, but they've only met people on their team. And, team. you know, yeah. not really anyone else, which is a very strange thing. So has any leader that you've met attempted 
to take care of that gap? And have you seen any of them do it successfully? Yeah, they um quite a, some of the good ones are getting their team to think very strategically about what their relationships need to look like across the business. Um, and they're either orchestrating collisions for their people with different key players across uh, the organization, or they are having meetings where they merge different um, people at different times. Um, yes. That's been quite effective. It's not as random as it used to be. You know, you went along to a conference of 70 people, you know, from your company, and you ran into people. Um, so once again, it's been amplified. People need to be much more conscious and deliberate about what their networks look like. Um, and there's yeah, there's some good stuff by Phil Wilburn, who is he's a network um, uh, researcher. He works at Workday now, used to be at CCL, but he's written quite extensively around what do good networks look like, especially in an environment like this. That's fascinating. So, so even the term network has had to take on a whole new dimension. It's networking within your own organization across the world. Mm. I love also that term you used, creating collisions. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's wonderful. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That's right. One of the things which tends to happen with all of us is we tend to start um, getting what they call the network science, a closed network. We know people who know each other and you end up in an echo chamber. And one of the, you know, the real challenges for people right now is because that's so comfortable, they've actually got to do the opposite. And you've got to branch out and connect with people who don't know each other and open up your network. Requires reaching over a lot of different boundaries, up the organization, down, across, outside. Mm -hmm. Takes a bit of effort and, um, you know, takes a bit of nuance and skill because people are already overloaded with Zoom meetings, et cetera. So how do you create real value for the other people who you want to meet? Exactly. And as you said, it, it needs to become more thoughtful yeah. and strategic. Yes. Uh, I need to reach out over here for these reasons, over there for this region. Even putting a team together or work group now yeah. needs to be looked at differently. Yeah. And for, now, I'm quite, sorry, I'm finding people getting quite suspicious of meet, meeting invites turning up uh, for them. Especially a lot of the organizations have open um, scheduling, which means you can just go into anyone's appointment and make a meeting. And a lot of the leaders I'm seeing, you know, look at their calendars and they've, some of them said they had 16 back-to-back -back meetings between 8 and 5 p.m. And they hadn't yeah. scheduled any of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Yeah, something, yeah, it, these are the balancing acts yeah, yeah. as the new system and process gets figured out. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of folks have shared with us that, especially now with folks getting vaccines um, and adopting what might be forever wearing masks in certain situations, actually having people get together four times a year, um, uh, so that there's the Zoom and et cetera, I don't need to see people every day. And yet the gatherings, making them more structured also, and they can be anywhere. Yeah, I'm sure that'll be um, 
True. It's going to be very interesting. And I don't think anyone knows. I think it's going to be one big experiment run by many different organizations. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's going to be very curious. One thing I um, just speaking to someone the other day who runs events for lots of different organizations and they all come together. And she was saying um, that we've now been through a full budget cycle without people flying around the world, traveling, staying in hotels, you know, eating at nice restaurants. And so um, one company I know, the CEO said, well, we've saved $250 million uh, and not traveling and this sort of thing. We are not going back to the old way. (laughs) And um, so that is going to be a big one. Everyone knows now how much they saved, um, how big a priority company's going to feel it is to bring people together. And I think different companies will have different cultures around this. Exactly. Exactly. So let's take this because this then led and continues to to lead in or build off of the book you wrote on stress and resiliency. What um, key uh, points can you share with us from there? Yeah, so this is a session I feel like I must have run 80 times now, uh, this workshop, since uh, COVID hit, because all of a sudden resilience was already popular and needed, and then people realized we probably need it even more now. Um, so this this work was based on 30 years of research done at the University of York uh, about this question, why is it when two people go through the same situation as each other, one person might get stressed and overwhelmed, and another person is fine. They're resilient. Yeah. Why the difference? And usually, you know, the traditional way of looking at this is events equal stress. So, however, that whole thing is why are people responding so differently to the same event, including what's going on for all of us at the moment? And so from this research, a few big ideas emerged. The first one is there's a difference between pressure on one hand and stress on the other. We usually put them together like they're the same thing got a stressful boss, stressful job, COVID stressful. Um, but if you pull them apart, you start to see they're slightly different. Pressure in this work was defined as external demand in your environment. And I'll ask leaders, do you think everyone in your organization has pressure? And they say, yes, of course. Do you think everyone is stressed? And they go, oh, uh, yes. And then a few people go, no. Some people go, uh, it sort of depends. You start to see they're related, but not the same. The second big idea from this research they found that was convert the pressure into stress. People need to do something very specific, and the people who weren't doing this weren't getting stressed. And what people need to do is ruminate about the events which are happening, either events from the past and attaching negative emotion to it. Why did this happen to me? Why did the managers decide this or events in the future? What if this happens? What if that happens? And just churning on and on and on about it at 3 a.m., you know, when you're lying in bed, yeah. or when you go to lie down, or when you're sitting in a Zoom meeting, you should be concentrating, but you're really worried about something which is coming up. When you do that, your body goes into fight or flight as if you're under physical threat. And if you stay in that state for long periods of time, as people are at the moment, you start to burn out. Um, it has an impact on your arteries, on your heart, on your immune system, um, and people just start to wear their bodies down and minds down. So um, that's sort of the first big idea is helping people notice how much are you ruminating at the moment? 
because I'm meeting a lot of leaders who have got very high levels of pressure but very low levels of stress. Mm-hmm. And then other people who, you know, if we look around, they've actually got very low levels of pressure but enormous amounts of stress. To see that these are two slightly different things is very important. And so a lot of leaders who I'm doing this with now can all of a sudden see that their stress is coming internally. It's not just some event out there. So that's sort of the the opening ideas and then we go into various things. And then uh, let's play that out further. Now that leader turns around and starts working with their team, some in the office, some from afar. Hmm. And those team participants will start having their own balance and imbalance around the stress versus the pressure. Right, right. And that's one reason I have heard that psychologically it will benefit organizations putting new processes around more flexible ways to work as long as the person has a choice, Mm, mm. then maybe they can create a better balance and a workplace that is more conducive to them doing their best. Yes, that's right. There's sort of um, different solutions which organizations and leaders might look at with their team. Some, which you're pointing out there, are sort of systems or processes solutions. Like we actually need to change our policies around flexibility, um, around work hours, around whether we can email each other in the evenings and the weekends. Um, That's one. That's sort of one bucket, which is very important. The other one is sort of what can the individual do for themselves and their own psychology with how they're dealing with it. And they're both important. You wouldn't want to only do one and neglect the other. Um, They're both you know, they complement each other. Um, and so the, yeah, so I, I think the leaders who I've seen doing best have been supporting their people in both those domains. Both Some of the ones who I've seen not doing so well, they tell me they basically, they took their whole work from the office culture and when, when COVID happened, they just picked it up transplanted it to the work from home culture and just did exactly the same thing. Yes. And it was incredibly hard on everyone. Uh, They didn't make adjustments. So you certainly need to do both of those things. What changes have you seen in some of the companies that didn't just take from their old culture and implant it in the um, at-home culture that actually reduced stress um, for their people now let's say, stuck at home for the next year? Uh, Yeah. So some of them, it was the message they sent right at the start. Um, Some of them gave people time off immediately, paid time off just to get your family situation sorted or your personal situation sorted. Um, They gave people some money, not too much, but just some, um, to show people that uh, to set up their, their new office space which they had at home. Right. Um, None of it was enormous, but it sent the message and built incredible amounts of loyalty uh, at that company, for example. Um, A lot of it came from the executives modelling a new way. Uh, I saw quite a few examples where the executives were saying, you know, take breaks, take a holiday, don't work the evenings. 
And yet everyone was getting these emails from the executives at eight at night and um, they knew that they were taking no breaks. Um, so the best ones modelled it and did that very openly, that they were going to take some time off, that they don't work after whatever hour uh, or before. Um, and people, a lot of it actually wasn't company-wide policies. It happened team by team. The greatest variation I saw oh. was was team by team, um, with some managers saying, you know what, <laughs> a lot of managers, the ones which did best overall were the ones who decreased their focus on task and increased their focus on relationship and connection and their team meetings, which was amazing to me because I used to know these teams and they'd always say, we don't have enough time. We don't have enough time to get through everything on the agenda. And when I spoke to them about how they're doing, they said they're going great. They've stopped trying to get through so many items. The oh. manager has actually freed people up just to make decisions and go do things. You don't need to consult as much as you used to with everyone else. And they've all given team members permission not to have to consult me so much. And that's mean they could just trust each other and get on with it. And it's freed them up oh, wow. to actually, I think to do that, they actually had to do the connection stuff they were doing in the team meetings. Um, but they just freed them up just to get on with things. That's been a like really clear identifier of the high-performing teams. I love that example uh, because we keep hearing you need to establish trust, and that's a very dramatic mm. way. Mm. Yeah. To say, you know what, go off and make those decisions. Yeah. Let's agree on the outputs, and let's all see what happens in the end. <laughs> and yeah. it's working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot. Ironically, there's less consulting with uh, than there used to be with a lot of the teams. People always used to get frustrated, I remember, with, oh, you've got to go off and sign this off with 12 people before, you know, you can move anything. And any one of them can say no, and it's over. Whereas now I'm hearing, just move. Just keep moving fast. It's an uncertain environment. We've got to take lots of experiments, keep making progress, and just keep updating each other. It's interesting, Nick. Um when you talk, when you opened up this podcast and you talked about how you saw in the past uh, different teams reacting to crisis in different ways, mm. it seems now that everyone is in a crisis, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and every single person is, let's say, in, in some cases, alone in their crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering um, what you suspect will come out of um, this crisis. And will it will it be dependent upon the culture that the company had before, or will it be more dependent upon the the culture that the leader you know has now assumed um, mm. given this new environment? I think it's going to vary greatly because um, I've I've noticed both on the individual and collective level with organisations or teams. Um, the ones who are not going to come out that well have just doubled down on their old approaches and old ways. And basically their solution has been work harder, work longer, hit your numbers, um, keep going. That's not enough. And so that strategy hasn't worked very well for the organizations <laughs> I've seen do that. I mean, you learned nothing. <laughs> it sort of seems obvious, but that's what had made them successful up until this point. That's right. These organizations and individuals were enormously successful with that formula. 
And so when the crisis hit, that was what they doubled down on. Um, the ones who seem to be coming out best, it's like that post-traumatic growth, they don't quite look the same as before. They're not out of it yet, uh, but you can see it. The green shoots are emerging. They've asked themselves the question, what's the opportunity here? That's probably one big differentiator. What's the it. opportunity here? And they've asked themselves, what's changing about our customers' needs? Um, what new business models might emerge here? What new capabilities might we need? And um, I'm also seeing they're not so short-term focused. Um, there's sort of different horizons. They've got some people looking at sort of the third horizon, which is way off into the future when things have settled down. What are we going to look like? They've got some sort of the mid-range. Then they've got some dealing with the crisis. They haven't got everyone trying to deal with the crisis only. That is fabulous. And I have heard that too. And I, it's almost like the crisis has made that. So that is our new way of looking at the world. So, yeah. so yeah. we are ready. On our, yeah. All right. Now we're going to go into my favorite part. Could you share with me this, um, these are leaders that you have found to be moving beyond achievement and uh, going into vertical growth mm. as opposed to horizontal growth. Yeah. Could you talk some about that, please? Yeah, sure. And maybe I should give a, a little bit of a little bit of background around what is this vertical and horizontal growth. Um, so in, in my career, I spent a long time um, doing leadership development, working in business, and, I, and sort of trying to help leaders and adults grow. And the sort of traditional way of doing that was just to say, well, what, what leaders need is they need new information, they new, need new knowledge, they need new tools, they need new skills, and if we give that to them, then they'll be really good leaders. Um, and so I got good at doing that sort of development. And the problem was, even though the leaders would get all this, they wouldn't really change. Um, and it wouldn't really help them solve the problems they're dealing with. And as I learned more and more, I saw it wasn't really a problem of knowledge. Um, it was more a problem that the leader needed to grow beyond the way they were thinking and seeing the world at the moment. Um, and sort of metaphorically, sometimes we talk about traditional leadership development would be like a cup. The leader's, the leader's uh, mind is a cup, and the goal is to fill up the cup as high as possible. Um, whereas this other type of development, which there is, which is more around growing um, the leader's capacity or um, growing their ability to evolve their mind, to see the world in new ways, it wasn't so much about filling the cup, it was growing the size of the cup itself. So a capacity expands. Um, and so most leaders who we see in organizations, um, they're sort of very much in this expert mindset or achiever mindset. They either want to have all the information, have all the answers, they are the expert, they know everything, or the next sort of stage beyond that is the achiever mindset, which is um, I just want to hit my numbers I want to perform, I want to win, I want to be known as being someone who delivers. So most leaders are at one of those two stages in their mindsets. Um, but they start to get to a point where you start going, is that all there is? 
And I'm seeing a lot of this in organizations now because I'm running sort of workshops on this. They're starting to get the point where they're saying, well, I've already achieved a lot. I've sort of done a lot of the things I thought were going to make me happy, but I don't feel fulfilled yet. Is the solution just to keep trying to achieve and do more and more and more? I'm already doing that. It doesn't feel as good as it used to, and I'm starting to burn out. And once leaders are starting to notice that and talk, ask those questions, they start to explore what might be beyond that. And in the research, what's beyond that is called uh, the redefining stage or redefining mindset, where you actually start to say, how do I both achieve some things in my life but feel fulfilled? What is You start looking, saying, well, I want to do meaningful work, not just hit numbers. I want a sense of purpose for what I'm doing or a sense of contribution. What do I really care about? And so for some people, you know, it can look like a bit of a midlife crisis. You know, she was going on great, and then all of a sudden, this happened. Um, <laughs> but so some of the work we're doing in organizations is helping leaders see where they are on that developmental s- stages. And honestly, they feel relieved when they see it, uh, that you're not going crazy you're not losing your motivation. You've just moved beyond that part of your life. And you see it with you know, consultants very often because they were already in workplaces. They were doing all that. And then they said, enough of that. The organization's you know, not going to let me move beyond that. And they'll go off on their own. They'll become consultants or coaches. Or sometimes they'll it stay in It happens to their teams, too. They, they yes. turn around and it's happening to their teams. So I, I want to keep that thread yeah, yeah, remembering yeah. if, so when the leaders start going through this new growth, it's going to have implications for their teams. Yeah. Just Especially a, now with this new environment. That's true. Um, I was just speaking to a group of leaders this morning who were saying that as they get into the sort of these stages, their teams sometimes um, feel confused. They feel left behind by their leader who wasn't telling them what to do anymore. They were talking, I was listening to a story about a CEO and um, some of the people on the team were feeling confused because he wasn't telling them what he wanted. He wasn't telling them what to do um, and giving them direction. He was sharing his thinking. He was sharing ideas. He was sharing what the future could look like. But then they'd walk out of the meeting and say, say what does he actually want us to do? <laughs> and that's the point. He wasn't going to tell you what he wanted you to do. He wants you to work things out. You know, that's why you're on the team. Um so it can be for, for their teams as well. You know, they're at different places as well on these uh, developmental stages. And I know you have a whole set of tools that um, leaders can begin to use with their teams. Obviously, a lot of it is around the dialogue and the asking questions. And when you have people in that team who are also at different levels and you make them aware of that, um, especially during these troublesome times, mm. you can talk about the opportunity mm. for a team to uh, really grow. Yeah. Be looking at the world differently. That's right. One interesting thing I've noticed is a lot of um, organizations would like the development to now happen at the team level, as opposed to what it used to be, which was let's do, you know, bring leaders together from across the company. That's been quite an interesting shift. So they're looking for solutions that teams can do with their team leader because that is the unit who is together uh, much 
closer than they used to be. Um, so that's certainly true. And we've built like a whole lot of resources for teams now for how they can develop together as a group, as opposed to it's, you know, 30, a cohort of 30 people, which used to be the, the more common way. Yes, exactly. Uh, and a lot of your, the, your white papers uh, and so forth have those tools in them. And uh, we want to make sure we uh, let folks know how they can go find those and use them. Uh, I just found them the other day. <laughs> going through all of the stuff that you have is is um, takes some time to digest. Yeah. So uh, and they're very exciting. Yeah. Oh, good. Lots of asking of questions, and lots of as uh, I'm just doing this for our listeners. Yeah. If I were operating at the level below me how would I approach this decision mm. versus if I'm operating at the level above me and I'm not, and we're not talking hierarchical level. We're talking at mindset level. And that's just <laughs> that I believe is just a fabulous way to, I, I look at the team and it's, it's like you're going to crack them open. Yeah. 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 Um, Nick, Nick, have you seen any um, particular practices that um, teams have taken on over the last year that you find pretty exciting? Yeah. Um, so I've seen that it's been powerful when it's come from the top um, and the executives, actually, because then it can permeate um, a lot of people all at once. There's something about um, sort of the senior senior executives, in particular the CEO and the team, they can create a bit of a like a ceiling for the whole organization that people can't really evolve beyond there because they just keep feeling they keep getting pushed down or they, they really do tend to set the elevation of the whole culture. Um, and where I've seen organizations make quite a big shift quite quickly is when the CEO, you know, has talked about we need to evolve quickly. Uh, the environment's changing, our context, our industry. How do we quickly evolve to be fit for the future? And the answer is, well, the executive team needs to go first and then do all of this at scale. And so one CEO uh, who I was working with, he said, okay, I'm game. How do we do this? They had quite an expert achiever culture, uh, very much like I know the answers, um, I'm bulletproof, no vulnerability. And we said, okay, what we're going to ask you to do is um, – Go out and identify what is the areas that you need to improve in and what are your strengths. And so he said like a 360. No, no, no. Do it live. So he went out and he interviewed people in the organization, throughout the organization, on what is his biggest backhand, they called it, like the area he's not so good at. And people were getting emails from the CEO, I'd like to have a chat with you about, you know, areas I need to improve in. And they said... Um, it was a shock to the system because no executive had ever done that before. And he went first, but then the other executive team members started doing it as well. And so all of a sudden, for the first time ever, you had these executives seeking feedback. They went through a process, and then at an all-hands meeting, he actually got up and shared, all right, here's what I did. I went out, I interviewed all these different people. I was hoping I was going to get to work on this thing, but no one told me that. What everyone said is, Mike, you need to get out of the details and be a CEO. You need to <laughs> set the strategic picture and leave us alone to do our work. And, you know, in his mind, that was coaching. 
He was coaching when he was down in the details, not for them. Um, and then the COO went next, and then the CFO went next and shared that. After they'd been through this process, they said, your turn, what do you want to work on? And what was powerful was that they had modelled it first before asking anyone else to do it. And then that approach, we sort of cascaded that out through more and more leaders. And so they got like hundreds of leaders doing this, plus many more things, many more tools. Um, but that was very powerful because it made things very transparent. It's okay to change. It's okay to develop. It's okay to be vulnerable with each other. I love that answer. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, um, Nick, I've loved this uh, chat and I love um, I love your approach to leadership. And uh, I love your cadence and your pace too. <laughs> um, I was wondering if, uh, if our listeners wanted to get a hold of you and find out more about your white papers and your trainings and your books, where would they go to find that? Yeah, they could go to uh, the website. It's www.nicholaspetrie.com. Uh, they can feel free to send me a message from there. But what I've tried to do as well is put a lot of free resources on there. So you can go, you can explore all the topics we've talked about um, and have it a chat to people. I'd like to follow up. Great. You ever coming back to uh, the United States or uh, you guys are good? Oh, it's a mystery. I, I do not know what the future holds. It, partly it will depend on what clients' expectations are. Like, are they good with doing things virtually? They say, no, we need to get face-to-face. -face. I, I mean, I loved my time in the U.S. Um, so, and my boys are Americans. They were born there. So um, I'd very much like to go back, but it's also... Um, it's good here for a spell as well. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Nick. Um, this has been a fantastic podcast. And thank you, Ginny, for finding Nick and bringing him to the podcast. And thank you to all our listeners for listening to another episode of Team Anywhere. And if you've loved this episode or any of the other episodes, please pass this along to your friends and colleagues. And we look forward to seeing you on our next episode of Team Anywhere. Bye for now. 